the FBI actively in the search for Jimmy Hoffa. And that, friends, is the 9 o'clock edition of the news. This is John Scott reporting. Next news as it happens, next scheduled news tonight at 11 o'clock over WOR Radio 710, the talk of New York. And now, Gene Shepard, next over WOR New York. I think that's the trouble is we got we're too lax these days. This is a permissive society. And too many people are allowed to tune away. And uh I mean that's that <laughs> to me that's ultimate permissiveness. I mean, George. In fact, um uh, you know, the, the, I, I hope you realize that uh, that many a network has toyed with the idea of uh, producing jamming equipment. Uh, which secretly and subtly jams the station and the channel next to their channel. <laughs> and of course, yeah, well, did you know this was done? Uh, uh, wait a minute, don't laugh. Do you know that I know that, that uh, now I'm, uh, yeah, I'm going to tell you a story you never heard of, of uh, American communication. You know, there's a lot of stories that, uh, that the average American walking around doesn't know about the field of media. You perhaps are aware, just faintly aware, that there is no love lost between various radio stations. You understand that, don't you? I mean, if you think that General Motors and Ford fight it out, or that Exxon and Shell battle for every last drop of gas they can sell, you have no idea what it's like in the field of communications. I mean, it's trench warfare. I mean, I've seen radio stations where all announcers were equipped with bayonets, and they were under strict orders to gut any 
anybody shows up from the neighboring station. No, this is the truth. Now, come on, Pat, they'll relax you. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Your job is to listen to the show. Okay. No, no, that's that's uh, that's. Uh, now I want to tell you tell you a, one of the most fantastic stories that I ever, I ever actually I, I knew several of the participants and I will not tell you what town it happened in, nor you know any any of the other details except to say that this occurred. Now uh, the, the violent anti uh, well channels for example in various towns television channels they they battle it out I mean really battle it out for the advertising buck. And and there are very few more dramatic moments when, by one of those horrible coincidences, a, a, a salesman, a time salesman from Channel X, arrives at this uh, prospective sponsor at exactly the same time that a salesman from Channel Y arrives. And they are both trying to sell six o'clock. Well, I want to tell you, I've seen I've seen scenes that, that rival. Uh, uh, you know, some of the more bloody Anthony Quinn movies. You know, everything but, you know, breaking the bottle off. All right, all right. You know, I'll come one step closer and I'll gut you. You know, no way. Uh, you know, this is a, now, I'm going to tell you a little story that may, <laughs> that may really surprise you. The battle is more than, more than personal. It becomes electronic in some of the more subtle infighting that I have seen. I will describe to you a town, not in the east, so it's okay. Don't say, oh, I know who he's talking about. You do not know who I'm talking about. This is a town out in the Midwest, and by the way, not a town that I worked in. So if you think, oh, I know where it is, no, you don't know where it is. I will give you this clue. It is in the upper Midwest. By the way, most people in New York believe the Midwest starts roughly around Harrisburg. Uh, <laughs> you, of course, realize that in, in uh, well, for example, Pierre, South Dakota, or in, in uh, say, a place like, uh, uh, oh, uh, the Badlands, they consider themselves living in the Midwest. Did you know that? Are you aware that's the true Midwest? Well, the true Midwest is, say, Duluth. Uh, it is not Pittsburgh. In fact, uh, to the to a Midwesterner, the Midwest ends and begins. Really, the beginning of the Midwest is roughly Chicago. Anything east of Chicago is the east, which means Cleveland is the east. Uh, I've heard Cleveland discussed as a typical Midwestern city by. Uh, yes, in fact, are you curious where? Recently on NBC News, uh, I've heard, uh, for example, a Cincinnati discussed as a Midwestern town. Nothing could be further from the truth. But uh, as you go, as you hit the real Midwest, which is the beginning of the prairies, uh, roughly St. Louis on, out to probably roughly the Rockies, they, they, that's that's the Midwest, the great barrel of the Midwest. Well, anyway, in a, in a town in the upper Midwest, <laughs> there were, for many years, there were uh, there were several newspapers in town. Okay, now everything was happy in that town because all the newspapers were owned by one one guy. We'll, for argument's sake, call him C. G. Bullard. Known uh, known known <laughs> uh, among his uh, closer uh, acquaintances as Fang Bullard. 
Now, uh, now C.G. Bullard, he was known for one thing. He pulled his own teeth, and he was very proud of it. Where others had to go to the dentist, he himself personally, sitting at his desk, would just uh, pull a molar right out when it was giving him trouble. And there's a man of guts and, and vision. And uh, he, 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 his family was part of a pioneer family, which was proud of the fact that in one season alone, they personally executed over 45 sheep herders that tried to get into that same county to use the same grass that they were using. It was that kind of a family. Mean. Okay. Now, Mr. Mr. Bullard, and such is not his name, friends. Mr. Bullard, <laughs> I repeat, to, to, uh, to uh, let's say, to, uh, uh, to take us off the hook, if there are any, by any chance, any fang Bullards, who own radio stations in the Midwest, which would not surprise me one damn but I've worked for several. But uh, nevertheless, Fang, yes, I'll tell you about the guy I work for. You want to hear about some of the most fantastic people in the world are in the field of media. I once worked for a guy that owned a television and a radio station, and he, he, was, he was very, very conscious of the fact. In fact, he was very self-conscious of the fact that he was roughly, and I'm not exaggerating, he was roughly four feet, nine inches tall. He's a little tiny guy. All right, so, you know, some guys are seven feet nine. Other guys are four feet nine. He was four feet nine, but he was very conscious of this. So this bothered him very much, very much. And obviously from the time he was a kid, you know, he felt like uh, he was one of the outsiders. You know, everybody's down there playing volleyball. And, of course, here he was running around among the ankles trying to play volleyball. And uh, even kids who were called shorty used to lean on top of him. See, so uh, he, he, uh, he was very conscious of this. So as he, like many people who are conscious of a physical defect, he was unbelievably maniacal in overcoming it. Oh, yes. Listen, all of history, they claim, could have been changed. Wouldn't have been what we have now, today. Can you imagine what history would have been like had Napoleon been 5 feet 10? He'd have been a nice, happy, fat Corsican farmer. <laughs> but the fact that he was... Uh, Four feet twelve, or whatever it was, yeah, roughly five on the button. He was a little less than that. He was driven to unbelievable uh, drive. He, he he was unstoppable. He was maniacal. Do you, are you aware that almost every talk show host is far below the national average in height? Every one, without exception. You could put, I'll tell you, you could put Johnny Carson, uh, you could put uh, Dick Cavett, Merv Griffin. You could put all of those guys in your overall pocket. <laughs> and they would have room, by the way, to invite Jack Parr in. Now, Parr is, is it, you notice the biggies? The, yeah, Parr is big. The big guys have slowly lost out to all those little scurrying guys that took over their shows. <laughs> all started as guests. <laughs> oh, yes, you put that, you let that uh, rat in your bosom, buddy, and he'll eat you. And, uh, and, uh, so, you, you know, yeah, who are the big guys? Well, Steve Allen, he's about six feet four. Yeah, Allen's a big guy. Jack Parr is about six, two, or three. Uh, and all these guys, yeah, it, oh, Dave Garraway is about six feet nine, replaced by four feet two inch Barbara Walder. So, <laughs> it's the little people, the angry little people. See, they're angry from the time they were, they were kids, you know. They were, every time they said, all right, all right, all right, well, all of you guys out for basketball. Forget it. Little Clifford. You know, he was lucky if he could, you know, if he could get out with a checker team. And even then, you know, he had to had to put the had to put phone books so he could see the table. 
So uh, he was very angry. Well, this guy was a very angry man. Oh, I mean, he was really angry. He was always angry. And as a result, he was fantastically successful. No way you could stop this guy. And I'm serious, he was four feet nine. And so, but he had to have symbols of his bigness now. He became big financially in every other way. He owned television stations, radio stations. He owned half of the state. He owned, uh, it was reputed that he owned the turnpike. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm serious, he did. So here, here's this tremendously powerful, potent, rich guy. So that, to, uh, to, uh, to, to rub it in, he used to have an office that was roughly, I'd say, roughly the size of the Felt Forum. And, uh, yes, it was tremendous. He did. He had an office, tremendous office. And the office was very carefully designed. The decor was selected with absolute, absolute attention to detail. As a matter of fact, there's another interesting point. The smaller the guy, the rule of thumb, Shepard's one of Shepard's famous operating life rules of thumb, Shepard the modern Machiavelli. The smaller the man, the bigger the office. The bigger the man, the smaller the office. <laughs> the other way. Okay? So you find that the little guys generally wind up with gigantic offices. Did you know that Hitler's office, did you, did you ever see pictures of Hitler's office? Fantastic. Hitler had an office, believe it or not, and it was in the Chancellery Building in, uh, in Berlin, obviously. And his office was designed by, you know, his architect, Speer, who has just gotten out of the prison here about a year or two ago. Uh, Speer uh, wrote a book about it. And anyway, one of the things that Hitler needed as his, his, his architect and designer designed it for him was an unbelievably immense office. I mean, really big office. I'm talking about the kind of office that's about oh, 150 feet long and uh, maybe... Uh, uh, 75 feet wide, and it has a giant ceiling that goes way up. And the desk, of course, that Hitler had was placed at the at the far end of the office, so that as you approached Hitler, you had to walk through this long, vast stretch of, of emptiness. And way at the end was this desk. Say, fantastic effect. Well, this guy that I worked for. Now I'm going to describe to you the scene, it's, and that's actually true. And the people who ever worked for this guy get together now, they're sort of a little private club. People who once worked for this guy are a little club. It's like people who were once actually on the staff of Hitler in the bunker. They probably get together and talk about the old days, too. You know. <laughs> but you remember the time he came in and, you know, that kind of thing. This is speaking of little clubs. This is WOR New York. And, uh, yeah, you know, that I, I'll tell you how funny this, this, uh, this, this place was that the guys who finally left this place, there are places that are so terrorized by the company and by the people who operate the company that the people who are in the company itself uh, have a feeling of being in some kind of army. See, the army, anytime you're in an army, the one thing about being in an army, you always, you all together, everybody in the same army, have a feeling of unity together because their enemy is the army, see? <laughs> and so, so there, there's a feeling of camaraderie which develops from, you know, from being uh, subjected to a common enemy. Uh, and, and this is even more amplified if the enemy happens to also be, there's a war on it, see? So if, if you're in an army and you have an, uh, the enemy is not only the army, but also, say, uh, whoever is on the other side, 
uh, you wind up with a very close-knit group. Well, in the case of, of this, this particular television, radio, uh, communications empire, uh, when the people got out of this place, like so for one reason or another, you see, they had, they, oh, by the way, one of their great pride and joys was nobody ever quit at this place. They wouldn't allow you to quit. As a matter of fact, how they, how they prevented you from quitting, see, was they had spies on the staff. There were all kinds of underground spies, see. So that if you're sitting down in the, let's say, in the lounge in a television station, see, and you said to your best buddy, say, Herman, and you said to Herman, say, Hermie, oh, wow, am I excited today. I just got a call, see, from uh, uh, K-L-U-C-K. I just got a call from Cluck. And, uh, and uh, boy, they really dug that audition disc, and... and uh, I, I saw a kidney seat, fantastic. It looked like it's going to go through. And you settle back, you know, on your duck, waiting because your show is going to go on in an hour, you know, and you're just cooling it a little bit. And the Hermes says, uh, gee, uh, I wonder if the coffee machine's still running. And he gets up and goes out of the room. Well, he's not out of the room eight and a half seconds when all of a sudden the phone rings in the lounge. And you pick it up, and you hear this voice say, would you please come to Mr. Bullard's office immediately? He wants to talk to you. Oh, no. <laughs> and five minutes later, you're up there, and he says, Get out! You're fired! You say, I'm fired. What for? You're fired! You've been doing a rotten job! Down the chute you go, and their slate is clean. Nobody ever quits. And they're, they're proud of it, see. Well, you're listening to the guy who broke all tradition in that company. I'm telling you, uh, you're, you're listening to an actual legend. And one day you're going to hear this <laughs> when you're writing your book on, on media, Dave, that, that I am famous at this place. I started at the seventh floor the day I decided to leave that place. See, I kept it to myself because I knew there were spies everywhere. I mean, see, so I didn't say anything. And the day that I decided I was going to leave, I went from the seventh floor all the way down to the ground floor. And I, I, each vice president, I walked into his office unannounced, grabbed him by the bow tie, snapped it as hard as I could against his Adam's apple, and told him exactly what he could do with next week's schedule. Went from the top to the bottom, and, and uh, by the time I got down to the bottom, the police were already on their way. Because the police were, of course, in, in the pay of Mr. Mr. Bullard. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the report was out that one of them is quitting. See, it's like it's like the report gets out at Stalag 12 that one of the prisoners is burrowing under. So, uh, and nevertheless, I, I, I rushed out, and that minute I was a hero. It was fantastic. And so, to, to show you, though, how retrospective it is. Oh, yes, vengeance can be retrospective, friends. You do not ever escape justice in the end, ever. I will tell you how vengeance caught up with me ultimately in the end, and I will do that immediately following these commercials. Did you get that? Q, C-U-E, Q. Which high-potency vitamin do physicians and pharmacists recommend most? Theragran and Theragran M with minerals by Squibb. The name Squibb on the label means that you have no doubt about the honor or integrity of the maker. And right now, you can take advantage of a great special offer. Buy 100 Theragran or Theragran M tablets at the regular price and get 30 extra tablets at no extra cost. That's 30 free when you buy 100. That's a month's supply 
for one person. But the offer's limited. Get your Theragran by Squibb now. It's the brand physicians and pharmacists recommend most for mixed vitamin deficiencies. It's available at Kinney Building, 790 Broad Street, Newark, New Jersey, Podaco Pharmacy, 876 Broadway, Bayonne, New Jersey, Schwartz Drugs, 1020 Stuyvesant Avenue, in Union, New Jersey. Fly Aeromexico, the airline of Mexico to Mexico soon. Aeromexico, Aeromexico. Aeromexico, the airline that takes you to Mexico City and on to Acapulco on El Grande, our wide-body DC-10. Aeromexico, Aeromexico. Aeromexico is the only airline to offer you first-run movies as well as stereophonic music on your flight down to Mexico City. And to make your trip even better, Aeromexico has over a thousand Aeromexico quality approved tours to Mexico. There's bound to be one just for you. See your travel agent or call Aeromexico, the airline of Mexico, and fly with us soon. Uh, Aeromexico, that's all right, that's all right. See, that's okay. When I say I want it, you should give it to me. Don't, don't check with head front office there. All right, okay. By the way, speaking of that, that airline, that one time I was on a plane heading to Mexico, and it was a wild plane. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was just on this plane, and I was not one of the people that was involved in this particular thing. But the entire plane, there were 110 people on the plane, 109 of them, I was the only one, 109 of them were going for their divorce. <laughs> You have never seen such a wild, unbelievably raunchy plane. People cheering and yelling. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> oh, well. Life among the uh, somethings. Uh, let's see here. Before we go any further here, uh, we'd like to remind you that everybody loves elephants. Well, they've added the word almost now. Uh, so it's almost everybody loves elephants. There are some people that are hung on hyenas, but the only time that we get to see elephants is in the zoo, right? Or the circus which is kind of sad. Well, I don't miss them really that much. You know, it's terrible. I, there's a lack in me. I wish, you know, I just wish. It's uh, Anyway, there's a new book called Among the Elephants, and it's the true adventure story of a young Scottish zoologist and his wife who went to live with and study the elephants. Ian and Oria Douglas Hamilton, with a hyphen, fought the terrors of the jungles of East Africa to try to learn the facts of elephant life. And they've learned some really important stuff, like uh, a little elephant has trouble trying to figure out what to do with his trunk. Took them seven months to find that one. That was really something. An exciting fact. And uh, zoologists are excited about this all over the world. They also discovered that uh, there's no such thing as the elephant graveyard, in spite of the fact that you live in Queens and have suspected that for years it is the elephant graveyard. They say, no, that's not true. It may be the graveyard of the lesser apes, but it's not necessarily... Well, that's another story. Anyway, this is called Among the Elephants, and it's a book by Viking Press. Now, how about... Uh, what's this European health spa stuff? Let's hear it. Own the European health spa. 
And, uh, you know, the one guy that really busted out, all the others were fired, you know, in the old conventional ways, like club. They would club them. When, yeah, when, when men were fired at that station, they didn't just fire them, you know, they would be clubbed with rubber truncheons. And, uh, yeah, often stripped and uh, head shaved and driven out to the street. But, uh, oh, it was terrible. But, yeah, I'm not kidding you. This is an unbelievable place. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you how, how mad this place is that a guy recently wrote a book, last year, as a matter of fact, wrote a book about the history of that particular giant communications uh, behemoth. They wrote a book, and, and this, whole, this book came out, and when it appeared, it was, you know, it was a big book. It was, it was published by one of the major publishers, and it was, uh, of course, promoted by the big television station, radio station. And when it came out, one of the reviewers who reviewed this book in this town says, how could they write this book? A whole book about the history of this station. You know, they had minute people that worked only two weeks, you know, and they talk about how they were here briefly. And all that. It says, how could you write a book about this station and never even mention that Shepard was there for a year and a half? See? Well... <laughs> it's 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 George Orwell. You rewrite history. See, I had escaped, and and I did it spectacularly. So I'm I simply am now an unperson. I never worked there. <laughs> I've been written out of all the history of the station. It's a fact. I've been written out of the history. So uh, nevertheless, in spite of the fact my show, by the way, they had the highest rating, and you know how they get around that? Uh, my show had the highest rating of any show they ever had at that time the TV show that I did at that point, and they merely said, a late-night show achieved astounding ratings during this period in the station's progress towards true greatness. They didn't say who the show was or anything, but it was just a show. But uh, nevertheless, it's like writing the history of The Tonight Show, and you don't mention Carson. A person that did the show uh, was quite successful in making the... <laughs> you know. So anyway... Uh, here's here's the kind of office that the that the head man had. Now remember, it was owned all owned by this one guy. It wasn't a giant corporation. He owned everything. See, well, one day I was summoned into the presence, and he was legendary. You know, you didn't you you never saw him. He had his own elevator, by the way. That's true. There are many big outfits have you know the own special elevator. You had to have the code. Uh, and this elevator only went to his his office, his suite. And so, anyway, I was summoned to the office, and uh, and I, I I approached you know with great trepidation. I'm sitting down in the in the lines talking to these guys. You know, I said, "Gee, what what's this about?" See, and uh, somebody says, "Well, if you were going to be fired, uh, you would not be allowed to speak to him." Oh no! Part of the humiliation process of firing you—that's interestingly enough, by the way. There are some companies that like to humiliate their ex-employees, the guys they're going to fire, by not even allowing him to talk to anybody in command. You are fired by a secretary. Have you ever seen that done? Oh yes, where some some chick, you know, some eight-year-old girl uh, says, "Oh, by the way, uh, Mr. Cloverman." Uh, I have a note here for you. Here it says, uh, "It says I'm supposed to read it to you." It says, "You're fired." There. <laughs> yeah, I've seen guys, that happen. So that's the way they did it there. So you were fired by a total underling, you know. And 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 the the bigger the guy, like say uh, some guy that was a famous news commentator, or really famous, you know, some some guy like you know somebody like the Walter Cronkite would be fired by a a girl who was just hired last week. And now she's firing news commentators. And that would be what they would do, see. 
So he he uh, he was fantastic in his creativity. He, he create evil. See, some people just have it happen. This guy created it, <laughs> and he'd cackle as it was you know came to flower. So one of the things that they required in this this uh, behemoth was when you came to work there. Now this is going to sound like something you cannot believe, but it's the truth, absolute truth. That this station had had manufactured at great cost, I might add, had had manufactured radio television combinations. They were like portable sets, like a, like a like a fourteen inch tube, you know, a little set. Uh, and it had a radio in it. You've seen the kind that have radios and so on. Okay. That everybody who got a job there had to buy one of these, and it was taken out of his pay. It was part of your equipment. Seriously. You, you, had, you had to buy this set, and it was taken out of your pay. Every week they'd take $9 out of your salary, see, to pay for the set. And the set, you, you got it absolutely no matter what happened, you got this set. There was only one interesting thing about the set. It only got one channel. And the radio had no dial on it. You could not tune it. You just turned it on, and you got the station. The station. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, I might add how, 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 how diabolical this was, that the station realized what a fantastic weapon it had here, see, in a one-channel, one-radio station set that they put them on sale then. They, they said, hey, it's a great, terrific thing, see. So what they did was take out ads in all the local papers, which they also owned. They took out full-page ads now. That here you could get a combination radio and television set for something like $12. And the, and the marks came down by the millions. They bought these sets, see. And so this is how about that putting how about you know putting the opposition out of business that way you know that's another way so uh, nevertheless uh, this is many of those sets are still working they only get that same station uh, you know that station and so on so I was called to his presence it was a fantastic moment I'll never forget it it was I was it was a very impressionable age you know I had just gotten out of college you know and I was oh wow you know. so uh, I went down this long corridor. And he had, in, in the, this was a, a, a tremendous building where there were all kinds of, you know, the corporation had all kinds of other things going. But his office was at the end of a long corridor that you walked down this quiet corridor with a thick carpet, mysterious doors on either side, marked conference room B, you know, stuff like that. And you walked down this, this corridor, and at the end of the corridor was a door that was was different from all the other doors in that it was the entire wall. It was a narrow corridor, and the whole wall was this fantastic carved walnut door with a great brass eagle or something on it. And uh, that was Mr. Bullard's place. Now, it did not have a knob. You did not go in and say, open the door. No way. You came to the end of the door there, and there was a little ivory inset button that you'd press. And, and at that point, a, a concealed speaker would say, how is there? Just like that, see. And you talk into it. You'd say, uh, it's me. Uh, excuse me, would you please repeat your name? We do not know I Mr. Me. You say, oh, that's <laughs> a uh, uh, whole clip. <laughs> well, this place was so Olympian that you just didn't say this is Cliff. Say, uh, excuse me, uh, Clifford who? Say, well, it's, it's uh, Cliff. Uh, gee, you know, at this point you start forgetting your name, you know, because you, you have no identity at all. You see, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, 
I'm Cliff Bugleman. And they'd say, oh, oh, one moment, please. And there'd be a pause. And then the door would open. It just opens. It's operated by motors or something. It just but it's like a pneumatic uh, sealed door. And the air rushes out, you know. And, and you, you, you go into this quiet place. Again, you're in a compartment. You do not just walk in. Totally glass sealed. And sitting inside a glass cage was an angry lady who apparently was also angry to the extent where she was heavily armed. Uh, so <laughs> you walked in there and say, and they had a little hole that, with, a, with a speaker, with a, with a two-way microphone you talked through. You said, I'm here. She'd say, he'll see you. Fantastic. He'll see me. See? She again presses a button, uh, and, and, the, and a glass door on the other side soundlessly wheels back. You are now in. Not quite. You went through another corridor. She says, that way. See, you go through another corridor, and she presses a button, and soundlessly a black obsidian door opens. It was a black door, just slides back, and you're in darkness. Fantastic. I walk in. Here's, first, I couldn't see because this place is very brightly lit at first, and this entire office is in almost complete shade. It's like gloom. Now, remember, this man is roughly four feet ten. That's why I have to remind you of a very important fact. And at that moment, you know, I looked around, and, and then I began to adjust, and I see that the room is a vast room, and it is indirectly lighted through louvers, like, and there's little beams of light along the ceiling, but it doesn't make any on the floor. It's just kind of dark, and you see this fantastic room, and at the far end of the room, tremendous room, on a raised dice, must have been... I'd say close to three feet high. I'm not talking about a little platform. It's about three feet high. Is this vast desk? And behind the desk, you could just see this this figure, and he has lights behind him. Behind him, this guy he'd read every known book on on operational psychological motivation, how to cow the troops, and uh, he had this light behind him, and you walked across this carpet that was, oh, I'd say roughly the length of Yankee Stadium. You know, you walked along this carpet, dead silence, and you arrived in front of this giant desk where you had to look up, you see, and you had to stand back. If you got too close to the desk, you couldn't even see him. So you, you, I, I'd stand back, and he's, he's sitting at this desk, looking down at you, of course. He's way high above you. He's looking down, and he has... A long ivory cigarette holder. I'll always remember that ivory cigarette holder. It must have been a foot and a half long. And he's smoking this cigarette. And he's wearing a pair of sort of purplish glasses. And he's, he's this figure, you see, just sort of behind the desk. You couldn't tell how tall he was. Or little he, was. he looked immense, though, behind that desk. Because here he is, you know. He's looking down, and he's got this, this cigarette holder. And I stand before him, and he says... Uh, and it's sort of a high voice. Sure, are you Shepherd? And I said, uh, yes. Are you? He doesn't know you. You know, you, you, you just you're just the star of his station and everything else. You've got twelve billion fans. He doesn't know who you are. You know. So at that point, uh, he says, uh, "Would you care for a French chocolate?" I staggered back. This I was not prepared. For. Would you care for a French chocolate? 
well, uh, you know, first thing I, you know, you can't say, oh, you're kidding, <laughs> you know, you know. So at that point, he 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 then he just takes this box, he just pushes it along the edge of the desk, and now you're you're looking up at a silver box. So help yourself, and. You know, I reach up and I take the silver box, and here's a box of very unbelievably elegant French chocolates, the kind, you know, that are maybe $30 a pound, you know, that kind that, that come in, in uh, little lace uh, holders, and, and they're all filled with cognac and, and the Napoleonic brandy and all that sort of thing. So you don't just reach in, you know, just stuffing them in your pocket. So at that point, I take a piece of this candy, just one piece, and he knows them very intimately, obviously. He's looking down, see. And he sees this, and he says, Ah, marzipan. I know what the hell, you know, they just all chocolate to me. But he knew what they were, see. So I take the piece of candy, and I put the box back up. And uh, he says, Oh, yeah, so you're a shepherd, of course. And he has a, a piece of paper. And he says, uh, I, wish, uh, I wish for you to sign this paper. And he hands me a paper. And I look at the paper, and, and I said, well, what is it? He said, well, you, you just signed it. And I said, well, may I, may I look at it, please? He said, well, it's just a contract. You just sign it. It was a contract for three years. That's like, you know, that's like being called by the Pope, and you've now been appointed the head of all the cardinals. In other words, he personally is saying, I want you to be here for the next three years. Personal. Well, I didn't want to be there. See, already in my head. <laughs> Here I am, you know, I'm faced with a fantastic moment of truth. Say, what are you going to do? So I said, well, well, gee, Mr. Bullard, uh, uh, I, I can't read in the dark here, and I'd like to, I'd like to look it over first. He says, it's, it's a very good contract. Are you suggesting that we wouldn't give you a good contract? Of course, their idea of a good contract, really, was maybe $12, $14 a month. Uh, also, uh, eight days a week. See, they had a special way of calculating days there, and uh, they were the only uh, only outfit I knew who could even play with time. They could make you work maybe 30, 40 hours a day. Uh, plus the fact, by the way, you were allowed one weekend off every third year to celebrate the signing of a new contract. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's, a, that's roughly the contract. See, so I, I said, to, well, gee, you see... Uh, so he, he then decided to be very, very friendly, and he says, he says, well, he says, of course, he said, you may sign it, but uh, you, uh, would you please give it to uh, Mrs. Waring after you sign it? He says, I'd like that to be back in five minutes because we wish to keep our book straight. I said, well, thank you. In other words, yeah, I could take it out and sign it outside, see? So I take the, I take the contract out, see, now walking out, and that's Mrs. Waring in the front there, see? So Mrs. Wang looks at me, and she says, May I have uh, the contract, please? And I said, well, well, Mrs. Wang, he said I could read it. She said, No, he said you could sign it. I said, Oh, oh, okay. I says, Here, I'll give it back. So I handed it back there. She says, But it's not signed. And I says, Well, I'll be back up later this afternoon to sign it. I have to go down and fix my show up. And I disappeared. It was that afternoon, by the way, that I made my decision, friends. <laughs> Now, that's an absolute true story, but I'll tell you one of the more fascinating sides of, the, of that story. And it wasn't the same town, but another town in the same state. A radio station got so mad that the other radio station was getting listeners. 
that it actually built on the outskirts of town a clandestine transmitter that broadcast a heavy hum at all hours of the day and night on the transmitter frequency of the other station. You could barely hear the station, but you could actually hear it. You hear so some guy buy a commercial, you know, and he tune on his radio to hear it. We go, Charlie's paint job. Forget it. They lost all their business in about eight weeks, and it took them over two years to track down the clandestine transmitter. And at that point, nobody built it. It just—they don't know how it happened. It was just magically this automatic. <laughs> so you didn't know there was things like uh, electronic warfare going on among the machines. Well, did you know that early? Now I'm going to tell you something really esoteric. In the early days of the Castro regime. Did you know that Castro and the Castro regime put a jammer on this frequency 710? That is a fact. That is an absolute true fact. And it, that early in the Castro regime, I had just come to the station and I used to get fan letters from guys that were underground in the Castro government who listened to the show every night. Now they didn't jam it because of the show. I don't think that. But but many broadcast stations were jammed in Cuba, and this was one of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, this is WOR New York. Stay tuned for In Conversation.